0: For the most part, just to focus on one expression in Luke 10, we'll uh, bring in some other texts as we go through this uh, lesson this morning. Luke 10, talking about the kingdom, you know, I, I don't know how you define kingdom. I, 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 do, I do know, and I do know that in some respects... We can define kingdom by simply saying the church. Kingdom is the church, the church is the kingdom. I, do, I don't think that's necessarily a wrong thing to say. I just think it's inadequate. I, I think it's incomplete. So it maybe if I was asking you to define kingdom, you would say, well, the kingdom is the church. And, and, I, and I wouldn't say, well, I disagree with that. I'd just say, I think that's a good definition. I think, I, I think that's a good definition. Kingdom is the church in some respect. I just, I just don't think that's incomplete. Here's, here's the way some people defi- define it. Uh, kingdom. And this is, uh, this is kind of the way, uh, there's this, uh, this fellow by the name of Scott McKnight, he's written lots of books, and he wrote one on the kingdom. And in and, and, and the introduction to the book, the book is called Kingdom Conspiracy, but in the introduction, he's, he talks about you've got two crowds, and he's oversimplifying it, but he says you've got two crowds in the church. You've got the skinny jeans crowd, and you've got the pleated pants crowd. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not in the skinny jeans crowd. <laughs> But he says he said the skinny jeans crowd and the pleated pants crowd define kingdom two different ways. And he says the skinny jeans crowd defines it like this. Here's his definition. The kingdom is good deeds done by good people in the public sector for the common good. Let me read that again. The kingdom is good deeds done by good people in the public sector for the common good. And what he's talking about there, you probably heard it used like this, especially among what he calls the skinny jeans crowd. This is, this is among younger people who define kingdom. You'll, 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 find, you'll hear it being used like this. We need to be doing kingdom work. I want, to be, I want to be doing kingdom work. And by that, they mean, and I'm not making fun of this at all. I think it's got a lot to say to us today. Uh, but but by this they mean we need to be out in communities joining with local groups or other people whether they're 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 christians or not we need to be joining hands we need to be doing good things you know doing good things for the for the common good of the community and by that they say we're doing kingdom work so i want to we'll talk a little bit more about that today i think that that view has something to say to us, though we wouldn't embrace it in all of its aspects. What Scott McKnight says about the pleated pants crowd is that they define kingdom as solely referring to individual redemption. So it is solely a sin thing. It's a redemption thing. So we are individually... Caught up in sin, overwhelmed by sin, we need individually to come to faith in Jesus Christ to surrender to him and to receive his salvation. And so that is what, that is when kingdom work is being done. That is that's the kingdom right there on an, in an individual sense. And we would, I think, push back against both of those in the sense that we believe those do not by themselves define what the Bible means when it says kingdom. You know? So I, anyway, I want to. I want to walk with you guys through this for a little bit this morning. The kingdom of God has come near, Luke 10. You, know, you notice that, expre- that expression in a couple of verses there, Luke 10, 9. the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. And then he says in verse 11, the kingdom of God has come near. Some of the verses I mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, your kingdom come. There was a sense in which, at least in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom was future. It was coming. It was close by. Uh, Listen to this expression. I don't know if you remember this one. It's not as commonly quoted, but Luke 17, 20 and 21. Listen to this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, they were very concerned about this. Uh, He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's an interesting way of putting it. He doesn't say it's coming or it's come near, but he says it's here. It is in the midst of you. So in some sense, in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom was coming. And in some sense, in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom was already there. And so it's an interesting kind of tension here, a tension we see after Jesus as well. In some sense, we see in the New Testament, the kingdom has come. Some of you, Mark 9, 1... Some of you who are standing here will not see death, will not taste death, until you see the kingdom of God come with power. And yet, in 2 Peter 1, for example, uh, Peter says the Christians there would, at the end, at that, on that final day, be ushered into the eternal kingdom. So there seems, even then, a sense in which the kingdom was future. So in the ministry of Jesus, here's here's all I'm saying. In the ministry of Jesus, he said it's here and it's coming. And after Jesus, after the church had begun, it seems as if the kingdom has come, it's here, and yet in another sense, it is coming. And so you've got that that tension no matter where you look at it. And uh, and I want us to think about that a little bit a little bit this morning. All right. There are five things. If you uh, we're not printing bulletins, uh, you got it by email on Thursday. There are five things there, and if you are taking notes at home, so to speak, filling in these blanks, I want you to think about these five things. I'm going to go through these kind of quickly, uh, and I want to talk for a little bit about, about the Old Testament, because when Jesus said, well, when John the Baptist said, the kingdom of God is coming, or when they said, when's the kingdom coming, what do you think they were thinking about? We need, to, we need to think about words the way they would have been used, the way they would have been heard by the people who used and heard them. And in, in the first century, when Jesus said the kingdom is coming or it's close by, what do you think that the Jewish people would have thought of when they heard the word kingdom? Well, they would have interpreted it, interpreted it the way they had been thinking about kingdom. They, they would have thought, oh, okay, well, the kingdom of Israel, you know, the kingdom of Judah, the, one, the kingdom over which David reigned as king, that must be what he's talking about. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly what he meant, only that that's the way they would have heard him initially. And so there must have been some overlap. Since Jesus chose to use the word kingdom, he must have wanted to use certain things that they were thinking about in order to teach them more about kingdom thought, right? So they would have heard him thinking about, talking about a real kingdom. So anyway, there are five things. When you've got a kingdom, you've got five things. Right? Again, I'm going to go through these kind of quickly, and then we're going to back up. And we're going to think about the church and think about us today in our, in our day and time. So what is a kingdom? What do, you, what do you got when you got a kingdom? Well, obviously, and this is, this is basic stuff, isn't it? Everybody gets this. You got to have a king. You got to have a king. Uh, that's just the way it works. It's kind of like that's the definition of a kingdom is you got a you king. Now, I think it's important for you guys to, uh, to hear and understand that the kingdom didn't necessarily begin when, when God chose Saul to be the king. We we know that from the history books, from First and Second Samuel, that God chose Saul to be the first king of Israel. But there's a lot of kingdom language even before then. Uh, In fact, as we said a week or two ago, and many times before that, when God gave the account of His creation in Genesis one and two, when He says, "Let us make man in our image, uh, man and woman, male and female, created them," you know that kind of language in Genesis one let them subdue the earth, uh, let them rule over it, uh, replenish the earth, all this, this kind of language in Genesis 1 and 2, it is very much kingdom language. It's reigning language. God is king, and he created us in his image to be his subjects, that we are his, the, the word I, I see a lot, and I think it's an accurate one, is, is we are his vice regents, we are reigning with him. God created us to be his sub-rulers, so to speak. We're to rule over the, over the earth as God's subjects, his sub-rulers, we're his vice-regents. So you got that kind of language early on. But as far as the kingdom uh, realized in a very specific sense, you've got it coming in the reign of Saul, David, the great king David, and then Solomon, and, and the kingdom divided, so you've got that history in the Old Testament. But when you've got a kingdom, you've got to have a king. Again, I just want to walk through this with you for a couple minutes and then we'll come back and think about us. When you've got a kingdom, you've got to rule. The kingdom has authority. The kingdom has power. You are to submit to the king. He's got, uh, in, in, his, in his role, he has this authority. And you see that with Saul, you see it with David, you see it with Solomon. That, that's kind of inherent in the meaning of the word king. Here's the third thing that you've got. You've got to have a people. And so... Every nation, Israel was a people. It was, the king has to rule over something, right? As so you got a people. You got the kingdom of Israel, you got the kingdom of Judah. Uh, in, in the world today, we still have kingdoms, though the image isn't used as much as it was in previous times. You got a law. You look at this in the Old Testament, and with Israel and with Judah, you had the law being Torah, or the the law of God, the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then as it was explained by the prophets. And so when you've got this people group, you've got a king, he has a rule, he has a people, and then he has a law. They were subject to the law, especially, and you read this in the Old Testament, they were especially, they they kept going back to the book of Deuteronomy, ...as being that guide by which they would live. Not only Deuteronomy, but that was like the embodiment of the law of Moses. And so, got a king. He's got a rule. He rules over a people according to a law, and there is a land. These five things, that's what a king kingdom is. That's what a kingdom is. It's got a land. It had borders. The Old Testament was concerned about borders. When God called Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to give you this land... And here are the borders of it. The River of Egypt would be the, you know, the, 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 sword, the southern border. Uh, you've got the, the, the north. You've got the Tigris-Euphrates as they bend over to the, to the west. You've got the northern border. On the, eastern, on the western border, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. You know, the eastern border, you've got this um, east of the Jordan River. And so you've got these, these territorial boundaries. This is the, these are the borders of the kingdom. It is a land. You've got a land there. Okay, now I say all that to say, we're going to go back. All right, so what about us? How does this apply? If those five things are implied in the use of the word kingdom, then how does that apply to us living today? Well, I want to suggest to you that it applies quite well. It, 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 it's a different, different thing. Remember in Acts 1 when the disciples said to Jesus, this is after the resurrection, this is before the ascension, so it's, it's uh, right before Jesus ascends back to the Father, and they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom? What do you think they were thinking of? I mean, I think we, we have an idea, right? They, they wanted the glory of that, of that existence under King David. That was like, that was like the glory days. That was that was it. I don't know what our glory days would be in here in in our present existence in America. We'd go back to I don't know. You, we maybe we'd go back to different times if we ask everybody what what are the glory days of America? You know, uh, every nation has glory days, and it's not right now. It, it never is right now. Even when people were living in the glory days, they didn't know it. Right? They would look back to some prior time, so we'd look back to some previous time and. And, and with, with Israel, it had always been they looked back to the days of the reign of David. He was the one, he was the, the, the rule by which everybody after him was measured. Everybody from then on, they just looked back to the reign of David. So when they said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What they were asking was, when are you going once again to establish rule so that we can have our own independence so that we are not under the thumb of Rome or any other nation, so that we can have our own law and our own rules and we can do our own thing and, and we don't have to worry about submitting to some foreign power like Rome or Babylon or Assyria or whatever. Jesus said, it's not up to you to know the times of the seasons which God has put within his own power and then so on. He says, but stay here in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. Stay here in Jerusalem and you you will receive power from on high. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. You get a hint there, though the disciples didn't fully realize it yet. You get a hint there that Jesus is not talking merely about a localized kingdom that's going to have rule over a specific uh, land mass that has eastern, northern, southern, western borders, but rather Jesus is talking about something else, and then we start thinking about <coughs> other things, like Daniel chapter two, when Daniel saw this in uh, you know, this vision and interpreting this vision and uh, in the days of those kings, you go back and look at Daniel chapter two, and you 'll see that Daniel is in, by inspiration he 's looking ahead to the future and the rise and fall of kings. And it gets to that fourth kingdom. And it's, it seems to be clear when you look at history that he's talking about the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire. And he says, in the days of those kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Right? That's in Daniel chapter 2. And then Jesus says the kingdom is close by. So what you see happening is Jesus is taking images that they were familiar with, but he's not interpreting them in the same way that they were used to interpreting them. It is not merely going to be an earthly kingdom, though it does have earthly manifestations, right? I think all of us understand that the kingdom is here, and you can see certain things associated with the kingdom. It's not merely spiritual. We have the kingdom on earth... In the sense that God's rule is being realized in the church and it has physical manifestation. We have a building, we have real flesh and blood people, we do real things with our physical bodies. So in that sense, it has a physical manifestation. Though it's not merely that. Now, you don't need me to explain this, I don't think. But these five things here. We have a king we got a king. And I appreciate Merv's prayer along this line. Because man, we are under a lot of pressure to make other things our king, other entities, other people our kings. And in many respects, I think this does parallel the idea of idol talk or God talk, like there are multiple gods, idols that we can pick. Our temptation since the very beginning since Genesis 3 has been, we want to be our own king. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what they decided. We don't want to rule with God. We want to rule independently of God. So we don't want him to determine what we can and cannot do. We want to determine that ourselves. We don't want any king to tell us what is good and bad. We want to make those determinations ourselves. You see what they were doing? We want to be our own kings. And so we can, that, man, that's the ever-present temptation. I think it's very real even this moment is, man, I want to do things myself. I want to make my own decisions. I want to do it my own way. I don't, don't want to submit to God or anybody else. And then you've got various kingdoms. You have certainly um, earthly kingdoms now. Their identity might be tied up more with being a, a citizen of the United States of America than it is with being a citizen of God's kingdom. Or we might have an identity that's wrapped up in some other organization or some other good cause, and we can fall short of having our our identity being wrapped up in being a citizen of God's kingdom, right? So we need to understand that there is a king, and that king is Jesus. God hath made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you have crucified, that's king talk there. We submit to him as Lord. In fact, that's the second idea here. Uh, The king has a rule God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. He has a a rule. He has authority over us. It is not up to us to determine our own future or our own rules, our own rights and wrongs, what is good, what is bad. God is the sole entity, the being, the one, the Lord, the God who determines what is good and what is bad. I think one of the problems for us as human beings as a result of our living in a fallen world and ourselves partaking of the same spirit that Adam and Eve submitted to, and that is we want to do things our own way. I don't want you, God, to tell me what to do. I want to do it myself. And yet when there is a king, you give up that right. You give up that right. When you are a subject of the king, you submit to the rule of the king. And that's hard for us. I'm not, I don't pretend that it's easy for any of us to do that because we are, man, we are. St- can I say this? We are stubborn people. Can we admit that? That we are stubborn people? <laughs> and, and all of us are. Stubborn and, and, and bullheaded, headed uh, stiff-necked, the biblical word, uncircumcised and hardened ears, to use biblical phrases there. That describes human beings. And so living under God's rule requires our constantly being reminded of the fact that God is king, that he's king and I'm not. And so we submit to his rule. He has a people. He has a people. And I believe this is where the church language comes in most clearly. God's kingdom is realized in the church. All of those who have submitted to Jesus Christ as King and Lord have been granted admission into the church. They are part of God's kingdom. This is where I think we should push back against that skinny jeans definition of kingdom work. Now, that definition being, what was it? Uh, good deeds done by good people in the public sector for the common good. Not a person in here would disagree with the goodness of that statement. We ought to be doing good deeds, we ought to be good people, and we ought to be doing them in the public sector for the common good. But when we divorce that, when we separate that from what God is doing in the church, then we, I would suggest to you, we are not doing kingdom work. We may be doing good work, but good work—the good work that we do—needs to be done in the name of our King, for the common good in the public sector by good people, but connected to the rule of God as manifested in the church. So I want to define that a little bit more specifically, because I see a, a trend in our in our world right now that, especially with um, certain social justice issues like being involved in doing good in communities, and there are a million ways we can do this and ought to be doing this. But some, I believe, it seems to me at least, some, especially younger folks, are defining kingdom solely by that. Like, I don't need the church anymore. The church has problems. And by the way, the church does have problems That's part of the thing. That's part of the deal. That's part of that's part of God's plan is for us to work through fallen with fallen people. You know, the church as as long as it's got you and me in it, you know, it's going to have problems. It's perfect in God's mind, of course. God's God's part of this is absolutely perfect. But you and I getting involved in it, we mess things up. So, but what I see is a trend here that's away from the church. Like, I don't need organized religion. I don't need church. I don't need that. It's a mess, you know. It's, it's, it's a mess. So I'm going to get out here in the community, and I'm going to get involved in good causes, and that's going to be my kingdom work. Now, that may be a good thing, but don't call it kingdom work because the kingdom work is attached to the king. The kingdom work is attached to the people of the king. Right? And so that's, that's the thing I think we need to, we need to recognize is that um, kingdom is not simply out here doing good. That's not, that's not the way the Bible uses the word kingdom. It never does. It never does. So that's this kind of new twist that we've got to be careful. I'm, I'm, again, I, when I said earlier that I think that whatever you want to call this movement, um, that it has things to teach to the church, yeah, I, I do believe that. I believe we need to listen. And that is that churches need to be more involved in communities doing good, doing kingdom work, uh, joining hands with people in the community, in a sense, and and doing good things, but recognizing that it is done within God's rule over his people as manifested in the church. (laughs) All right, here's the fourth one. we got a law. There's a reason why Jesus, when he... In the first few chapters, especially as, Mark, as uh, Matthew tells the story of Jesus' life, that in Matthew, well, he does, he, he uses all this Old Testament kind of language, you know. He's got, uh, well, let's just start Matthew 3. Uh, Jesus goes into the waters of baptism. He's baptized by John the Baptist. Remember that? That's at Matthew 3. He goes into the wilderness in Matthew 4 and is tempted by the devil. In Matthew 5, he goes upon a mountain. And he starts speaking to the people. Now, you notice the parallels? In Exodus, the the people of God went into the water of of the Red Sea. Not literally into the water, but they went over on dry land. They're surrounded by water on all sides, right? They went through the water. They immediately went into the wilderness. And then Moses went up on the mountain and gave the law. Jesus went into the water, went into the wilderness... And went up on a mountain in Matthew 5, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." You see what he's doing there is he's helping us to see that the king has a law. and Jesus came to give, in part, at least, to give us the kingdom law. How do we live? We submit to the rule of Jesus Christ as, 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 as given not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but embodied in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We live according to those principles. We live according to His law, as revealed in the entirety of Scripture. We would suggest all Scripture is given by God's inspiration, right? And then God, God's kingdom has a land. Now here, it's interesting. Near the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's a sense in which... God's kingdom is the whole earth. So it has no boundary. I think that's important to acknowledge. Uh, and, and, and we all believe this. Uh, we, don't, we don't believe that God. God's kingdom only is in America. Uh, we believe that God's kingdom is everywhere and anywhere. But that doesn't mean that every place out here right now... Here's, here's where I see the future sense of this coming into play, especially. Everywhere, God's kingdom is not realized. There are people living on this planet, a lot of people living on this planet, who have not submitted to the king. Now, God has ultimate authority. He is the great king, but not everybody is submitting to his reign yet. But Philippians 2 says, one of these days, every knee will bow and every tongue will Will confess. There's a sense in which the kingdom is here. It has no geographical boundaries. But there's also a sense in which a lot of people are living outside of God's kingdom. But one of these days, one of these days, his reign is going to be realized over all the world. And so when the Bible talks about the eternal kingdom, when it talks in Revelation 21 and 22, about, about heaven and earth and about the new Jerusalem and the church, that is when God's reign will be realized ultimately. And we look forward to that day. But here's a question as we close. Have, have you submitted to the king? Have you submitted to the king? It doesn't come naturally because you want to be your own king. But what Jesus has invited you to do is to realize that doing it your own way doesn't work very well. In fact, it works terribly. To submit to the king who loves you, the king who, this is, this is where we, we get into territory where earthly kingdoms can't even understand this, where the king has died for you, and through his death and through his resurrection, he was qualified to be your king. And so he is a king who loves, he is a king who dies, he's a king who's resurrected, and a king who one day is coming back, where his reign will be realized in a universal way. If you need to become a Christian today, we're here to invite you to confess him as your Lord and Savior, to put him on in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, and be added by God to his church, a subject of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Maybe you need to come back and ask for prayers. If we can do anything to help you, let us know. Let's stand, let's sing. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come.